Um, We're just going to read the Bible now. Um, We're going to be reading from Luke 12, um, 13 to 21. Um, It should be coming up on the screen behind me as well. So it's Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of life's possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. All right, good morning and welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. So good to have you with us if this is your first time with us or whether you're a member who gathers with us each week. Uh, And I pray that as we open God's word this morning that if you are here and a follower of Christ, that you might just have a refreshed vision of God's goodness and mercy towards you in a way that would transform the way you see the world and people around you. And if you're here, I guess, asking questions about faith or even investigating for the first time, you might just get a glimpse or an encounter of a God who is like no other and who transforms lives like no other. And so I'm actually going to pray to him now before we start our time that this time encountering his word might be something really transformative. So pray with me. Father, we thank you that you love us like no other. That there is none who sent their only son to die on our behalf so that we might be forgiven and set free, that we might have life eternal, and that we might live lives transformed by the gospel, that it might be full of the hope and joy of the gospel, and that we might love you and love our neighbor as ourself, and that through this that you might be glorified and shown to be a God who is merciful, who is kind, who is good, who is loving, who is faithful, who is all-powerful and all-knowing. And Father, we just pray all of these things for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, to get you up to speed with what we're doing, we started the year by looking at a passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus explains to his church what they're meant to be like. And he says, you're meant to be salt and light. You're meant to be different from the culture around you, but in a good way. And you're meant to stand out. And he explained through that passage that we are called as a church to be different in order to make a difference. And going into that, the reason we're doing a series called Counterculture is because we're meant to be shaped by the gospel in a way that is different to the culture around us. And we started with the topic of money, and we looked at the stories of two rich men who had two very different responses to Jesus last week. One of them walked away the same, but sadder, and the other one walked away completely transformed by an encounter with Jesus in a way that that reformed the way he thought about life, money, and everything in between. And we finished with this challenge, or I finished with this challenge, to live differently. To not just hear God's word and then walk away thinking, oh, that was interesting, but to actually do something about it. And the challenge that I left everyone with was for 20 days 
to do the practice of downsizing. The natural kind of way we do things is we upsize and upgrade everything. And so for 20 days, just to try downsizing. And it was just in simple kind of purchases. So if you normally buy a large coffee, make it small, transfer the difference to go away to alleviate poverty and injustice or advance the gospel, to maybe skip a takeaway meal and instead eat from home or something, and again, transfer the money to do that. And so I've been doing that, and I don't know if you've been doing that too, or those of you who've taken it up, but I had a moment this week in doing it where the thought just flashed through my mind of like, because the way I've been doing it was, this is someone else's idea, it's not mine, was to have your homepage on your phone be a charitable organization, and the one I've chosen is alleviating poverty in some of the poorest parts of the world. And so any time I thought about justifying any kind of small purchase, I was like, I can't do it. But then I also had this thought flash through my mind. I was, I was like, will I never be able to get anything or justify any expenditure ever again? And part of it, I laugh about it, but I think the thought that, that flashed through my mind was like, I can't, I can't doubt God's fairness in this, but it feels somehow unfair. Whereas God just kind of means to sort of put me in this position. But when I thought about it a little bit more, God is definitely not mean and not cruel, and not just as we see him in the gospel, but in what he calls us to. I don't know if it's the same for you, if you can testify in the same way in your own soul, but I am most happy when I'm most about God and others. That is when I'm most satisfied in my soul, is when I'm living out what God has called me to actually do. And the times I'm most miserable and insufferable is when I'm most about myself. And I don't know how you generally assess whether or not you'll purchase something, but the way I tend to do it, my natural default setting, is I have three categories. I have me, me, and me. And it usually goes like this, and it might be the same for you. When I determine to buy something, I ask the question. I don't ask the question. It just happens automatically. The, the, the process is this. Do I want it? Do I have enough money to buy it? And if I buy this, will I miss out on something better? It's me, me, and me all the way down. And I do this, and you probably do this many times a day, and it builds in us the belief of selfism that we looked at last week. I am the center of the universe. My immediate needs, wants, and desires are the most important priorities in my life and maybe in everyone else's life. And this belief makes us miserable. And I'm not the only one to observe this. David Foster Wallace, who was an author who's lived a troubled and even problematic life, gave a famous address at a graduating speech for Kenyon College. And he, um, he took some time to explain to students the danger of selfism. You may have heard excerpts of this speech. Someone turned it into, into kind of an animation maybe a decade ago or so. But I'm going to read out just an extended section from his address that talks about how naturally life inclines us towards thinking about ourselves and ourselves only. He says this, By way of example, Let's say it's an average adult day and you get up in the morning. You go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job. Remember, he's speaking to college graduates. That's why he's addressing that type of job in particular. And he says, and you work hard for eight or ten hours, and at the end of the day, you're tired and somewhat stressed, and all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour. And then hit the sack early because, of course, you have to get up the next day and do it all over again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't got time to go to the shop this week because of your challenging job, and so now after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of the day, and traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. 
And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. The store is hideously lit and infused with soul-killing music or corporate pop, and it's pretty much the last place you want to be, and you just can't get in and get out quickly. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit store's confusing aisle to find the stuff you want, and you have to maneuver your junky cart through all these other tired and hurried people with carts, etc., etc. And eventually, you get your supper supplies. Except now it turns out that there aren't enough checkout lines open, even though it's the end of the day rush. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating. But you can't take out your frustration on the frantic lady working the register, who is overworked and at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here at a prestigious college. He goes on and on, and then he concludes with this: My natural default setting. Is the certainty that situations like this are all about me, about my hungriness, my fatigue, and my desire to just get home? And it's going to seem, for all the world, like everyone else is just in my way. And who are these people in my way? And look how repulsive most of them are, and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line, or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look at how deeply and personally unfair this is. He calls it the natural or default setting, and we've all done it, or we've all experienced it. Do we see ourselves as the center of the universe? It's just the nature of things. It's the default setting. It's the camber of our culture. It's what we incline towards: is to think it's all about me, and it makes us insufferable. Have you ever considered that the way you spend money? Might be contributing to the reason that you are so irritable with your house or spouse, with your housemates or spouse or family members or fellow human in traffic or at the shops. It makes us selfish and self-absorbed, and it makes us irritable. And God is not cruel to rescue us from this. But there is a worse reality to this selfness. It can blind us to the reality that we need to be saved ourselves. That we are not the center of the universe, but we ourselves need saving, and that there is it imperils our very lives to forget that we ourselves are sinful humans who need a God to end a human history to save and redeem us. And we're going to dive into a story now where Jesus warns someone who is completely blinded by his own self-concern and desire for money that accords with it, that he misses the spiritual danger that he's in. Come with me to Luke 12 to the start of this story, in Luke 12:13, and we're told this: Someone in the crowd said to him, that is to Jesus, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." But he said to him, "Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you?" And he said to them, "Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions." So someone in the crowd, there's a large crowd around Jesus, and someone in the crowd says, "Jesus, I need you to get involved in my family feud." And he says, "Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." So in his culture, it was common that potentially the oldest brother would get all of the inheritance, and then was supposed to divide it among the other siblings, or at least share it with them. And here, this guy's brother is obviously not doing his part, and he wants Jesus to get involved. And so he says to him, "Jesus, you tell him what to do." He's trying to kind of 
get some heavy artillery involved in his little family dispute to sort of, you know, to strong arm his brother. And the thought occurred to me this week, I wonder if his brother was actually there. And that's why he was saying to Jesus, tell my brother. And at that point, I could imagine the brother just sort of looking at the ground and sort of scuffing his shoes a little bit as all the crowd kind of zero in on him. And as he wonders how Jesus is going to respond to this. But instead of Jesus jumping in and saying, you know what, that is, where is your brother? Show me where he is. Yeah, that is so unfair. I'm going, to, I'm going to take care of this guy. Instead, Jesus rounds on him and warns him. And he says to this guy, you be on your guard against covetousness because one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of their possessions. He warns him against covetousness. He says, if you think, if you have the central belief that life, that all meaning and happiness is found in your stuff, then you, you won't be able to not covet. It will be natural and obvious that you'll be envious of people who have more than you or people who have the same as you but they got a lot easier than you did. He says, if you believe that life is about stuff, you will covet and covet and covet. And he warns this guy, he says, watch out for covetousness. And to explain his warning, as he so often does, he then dives into a story to explain his meaning. And he says this, in verse 16 it says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He gives a simple illustration of a man who in a rural society gets a bumper crop and he has more than he knows what to do with. Not only does he have more than he can eat, he has more than he can even store. He has so much stuff that he's now got a decision to make. I've got more than I need. I've got more than I can even store. What do I do with it? And he has options available here. One of the natural ones would have been to say, look, I have so much stuff. I have more than I can eat or my family can eat. I have more than I can even store up. I'll give the rest away. But that's not the conclusion he comes up with. Now, in the story, he says, all right, my barns aren't big enough to store all this stuff and all this wealth. I'll tear down those barns, I'll get bigger barns so they can actually store it. And it's interesting because this is an understanding of wealth that's pretty natural to our economy. In Sydney, where life is expensive and it's so hard to get a house, people with houses don't tend to think, well, I've got one, that's it, I'm done. We remodel a room, then a house, then we tear it down and build a bigger one, then you flip it and sell it and get another one. And then you get more. It's up and up and up. That's what this guy's thinking. He's thinking about the future. He's like, I've got more than I expected. I know what I'll do. I'll store it up and it will secure my future. And money can make you dream like this. If you've ever come into money suddenly, or you're about to come into money, it can cause you to dream. You start to imagine all the ways and all the comforts that it will bring. Imagine how easy life will be. Once this money comes through, this will be easy, that will be easy, I won't have to worry about that. I could take a part-time job, I can quit the job I hate, I could take pay without leave, I could travel. All these options, the world opens up to me. Money has the power to kind of make you woozy like he is and to start just dreaming about what the future could be like. But then the story lands on a hard note. 
After this guy has come up with his plan to, to stack up his wealth and to secure his future, look what Jesus says. In sentence 20 it says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. His plan seemed so wise, except that he forgot one crucial factor, or two really, death and God. He planned his whole life out, but he forgot to factor in the thing that cannot be left out, the thing that can undo the whole plan. Imagine planning a railway and building it so that it ends on a 300-foot cliff into the sea and then putting people on a train on that track. No one would ever do that. No one would ever not think, where is this thing heading and what's actually going to happen? No one would ever not think about the disaster that's coming. But Jesus is saying, this is what this man does. He thinks about his whole life, and he doesn't think about the fact, hey, maybe, maybe I'll die, and maybe there is a God, and I've got some business to do with him. And so in this story, the man who seems so wise is actually foolish. He leaves out the thing that cannot be left out. And Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is not rich toward God. And so, the, of course, the question then follows then, what does it mean to be rich towards God? That's such a strange phrase. It's not something that rolls off the tongue often. Well, again, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing here. After telling this story, after warning this guy who's trying to get Jesus involved in his brotherly feud, he goes on and explains exactly what he means. Look what he says in Luke 12, 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or about your body, what you'll wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. And they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark here. He says, look, don't worry about your life. God has you. Your Father loves you more than the birds that you observe around you who are fed. That's it. He cares for you so much. He loves you so much that He sent His own Son to die for you, to protect your life through death forever. That's how much He loves you and cares for you. Think about the people in your life that you would actually be willing to die for. The people that you love that much that without hesitation you would take a bullet for them. Think how powerfully and yet imperfectly you love them. And then consider that God loves you more even than that. And that his love is different in quality because while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. We will die for the people who would die for us. But he even would die for his enemies. That's how much God loves you. And that's why Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Don't get stressed about the things that everyone else is getting stressed about. Because God loves you and has your very life in his hands. To believe the gospel is to know a love that is stronger than death and that is worth more than anything in this world. It is a, it's a strange obsession of multi-multi-billionaires to become obsessed with eternal life. And I think part of it has to be when you get, I just don't know what it's like to be that rich. Like to when, a, when a multi-million dollar purchase is just like, a, is like an impulse buy for you. I, 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 I don't know what it's like to live in that kind of zero-gravity environment. 
But somewhere up in the stratosphere up there, you must be so powerful and you must be so used to people taking instructions from you and you must be so used to succeeding at life that you start to think, you know what? I reckon I could take on death. I reckon I might be the one person in human history who's going to outdo that statistic. And they start thinking about cryogenics or they come up with crazy projects like one of them's doing at the moment that involves... Look, it's basically like an Instagram wellness program and supposedly that's going to extend your life forever. Best of luck to him. But Jesus says, you have the one thing that a multi-billionaire would give their entire fortune to if they were about to lose their life. For just one more hour of life, they would give everything. And he says, if you know Jesus, you have it. You have life eternal. The life of God is now at work in you so that you will move through death unsinged. He says, you have that very thing. So don't grasp hold of all these other things like your life is in them. Your life is in Christ. And when he goes on to say what this means for our life, he's not going to say, in order to earn that life, these are the things you must do. The gospel is the opposite to that. He says, because Christ has done this for you, because God has loved you this much, because he has granted you life eternal with him forever, look at how this changes everything. We don't earn our way to God, but in response to his love, it transforms how we look at everything in life. And so in Luke 12, 27, he says this, Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, and do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom... And these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, if you know this love, you're to be completely different. You're operating on a completely different way of seeing the world and people around you. And he says, don't, don't do what the world does. Don't trust in those things because ultimately it will break your heart and ultimately it cannot save your life. It will make you covetous and selfish and ultimately it will blind you to the spiritual danger that you're in. He says, no, instead, you are to seek his kingdom, to seek his kingdom first. Rather than seeking after the things of this world, we put the priorities of God's kingdom first. And so what does this mean when it comes to handling our finances or stewarding what we have for the glory of God? When it comes to money, it must be kingdom first. And that means advancing the cause of the gospel and alleviating poverty and injustice first. And so it should be the practice of followers of Christ that what you first set aside when it comes to income, what you first set aside is the money that will go to advancing the gospel and alleviating poverty and injustice. And for one very simple reason. I'll illustrate it this way. Occasionally, if my my wife is working at night or out or something like that, she might text her and say, can you save me some dinner? And I have two ways of doing this. Let's call the first way the way of marital harmony. In the way of marital harmony, I smartly think I will get her portion first and then put it in the fridge. And therefore, her dinner is guaranteed and then we can go ahead and eat our dinner. That's the first way. The second and more common way is what I call the way of sadness and the way of I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. And this is when I forget to set it aside and so we all have dinner 
And then in a panic at the end, I realized I was supposed to set something apart. And it's like a little bit of chicken and a bit of rice and maybe like a single spinach leaf or something like that. And often a text to say, hey, you might just want to stop off and grab yourself something on the way home. Now, when it happens this way, when it happens this way, it's clear that the principle of setting things aside first is the right way to do it. And usually because it means we'll set aside a generous portion. The only thing that would be worse is if, is if I set aside a measly portion and did it ahead of time. So she'd get home, she'd be like, oh, no, you forgot. And I was like, no, no, that's what I think of you. That's, that's for you. That would be the only way possibly to do it worse. And so if you're a follower of Christ and you've come to understand the love of Christ and everything he has done for you and the life that you have in him, when it comes to stewarding your finances, it means kingdom first. It means setting things aside first. And so one of the things we're going to do here, if you're a member here and a part of a small group, is like we did last year, we're going to do something called pledging, which we do anonymously, which is where you just pray and think and plan ahead and think what are you going to set aside for advancing the gospel and for alleviating poverty right at the beginning of the year, before everything else happens, before the spending kind of just takes over and our, our inevitable upgrading happens. And what we're going to do this year is slightly different to last year. What we're going to say is encourage you to put what you'll set aside for advancing the gospel locally through our church community, for the, uh, for the gospel cause globally through missions, and for alleviating poverty and injustice. And to do that at the beginning of the year as a way of setting things aside first, knowing that we trust Jesus and that we seek his kingdom first, that we trust what he says here in Luke 12. But the next question that people often ask is, well, okay, that's definitely the case, and I don't want to do the thing where you set aside a measly portion, but how do you think about numbers? What does it mean to seek, seek the kingdom first, and what kind of amounts should we be thinking about? Well, the first principle that Jesus gives us is that we're to be different to the world around us. And that's helpful. Only 80% of Australians give anything at all to charity. And so at the very least, the church should be different there. But 80% of adult Australians give on average $764 each year to not-for-profit organisations, which, according to the median Australian income, that equates to about 1%. But in reality... That number of 764 is slightly inflated by wealthy and generous givers, and the median given is actually about $200, which equates to about 0.3%. And so helpfully, the good news is in this way, it's not going to be that hard to be different from the culture around us in this way. But if you are a follower of Christ, there is a principle in the Old Testament of setting aside 10%. And not only that, but if you follow organizations like Effective Altruism, not a religious organization, that's a, that's a number that they recommend people aim for as well. But the reason it's helpful is that throughout time, God's people have set aside these things for those same purposes, advancing the gospel, alleviating poverty and injustice as something to aim at. And it's very helpful to think of it as a general floor and not a ceiling. And you want to be careful about this because in certain times and in certain circumstances, it may not be wise to give that much. There, is, there are cautions about that. But I think as a follower of Christ, you'd want to be very careful about going beneath that. And for this reason, a guy called Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. And I'm going to read a quote out from this about what he talks about in terms of grace giving. He says, Studies over the past decades indicate that American Christians, so he's speaking to that context, give on average between 2 to 3% of their income. 
In fact, more than one out of four American Protestants give away no money at all, not even a token $5 a year. A 2013 study found that those who do tithe compose of only 10 to 25% of the families in church, and they often provide 50 to 80% of the funding. Isn't it troubling that in this wealthy society, what's inaccurately called grace giving amounts to only a fraction of the first covenant standard? Tithing is God's historical method to get his people on the path of giving. In that sense, it can serve as a gateway to the joy of true grace giving. It's unhealthy to view tithing as a place to stop, but it certainly can be a good place to start. Tithing isn't the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish line of giving, it's the starting blocks. Tithes can launch us into the mindset, skills and habits of grace giving. He encourages believers in Christ to think on the gospel, to contemplate what they have and to think of the needs around them first. But there is one more objection. Even as you're sitting here and thinking about this, you might have heard talks on giving before, and you're like, I hear it, but if I'm honest, I just don't want to. And in a way, wouldn't that mean it's kind of hypocritical to do it because my heart's not in it and God loves a cheerful giver and all of that? Well, Jesus does address this one last objection in the final section he explains here. After having told this story and explained them the implications of the gospel, he says this, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sow your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you're struggling to have a heart for the poor, start giving to the poor and see what happens. If you want to have a heart for global missions, start giving to global missions and see what happens. Jesus says, where your treasure goes, your heart will go also. Where we give doesn't just reflect the state of our heart, it actually shapes our hearts. And here Jesus is saying, if you understand what you have in Christ, it should transform you in the way that you spend. It should move you out of the center of the universe and put God in his right place in the middle. And orbiting around that should be the ways that we think about money and how we steward it for his glory. Let me finish with a quote from Jim Elliott, who was an American missionary who was one of five people killed in Operation Orca, which was an attempt to evangelize a people group in Ecuador, a remote people group. And in reflecting on the implications of the gospel and the risks of the mission that he undertook, he said this, He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. May we be fools to the world, but wise in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the grace of the gospel, for the free gift of eternal life in Christ. And Father, we pray that you would transform us to be a people who are marked by joyful generosity, that we would be wise according to the kingdom. And Father, we pray that through this, that you would impact many lives. Father, as we see the needs of the world around us, we can feel overwhelmed the needs of those who don't have enough to feed themselves or their families, the needs of those who are suffering from curable diseases, the needs of those who need the message of the gospel and need life eternal in Christ. And so, Father, we just pray that you would move us in this way and transform our hearts and minds to come in line with the gospel. We pray that you'd remove from us guilt and shame and instead give us conviction by your Spirit to live by your ways 
and that we might see in this the privilege it is to follow after Christ, our Saviour and our King. And we pray all these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.